0: All right. Well, thank you guys. This is the last class of 2020. Uh, I was thinking, whenever I was walking in here, I was like, man, we could kind of do a recap of all the great lessons of 2020. But I can't really remember what all we've talked about this year. Um, it's been a crazy year. I was telling I was telling Marty and Terry yesterday. I should have known 2020 was going to be bad because on New Year's Eve of last year, so you know, about a year ago, New Year's Eve at 11:35 at night. I got a call from Tammy, as I recall, from Daryl's wife Tammy, who works in our security team, uh, that this building that we sit in was flooding, and they couldn't get a hold of Pat Fowler, you know, our facilities director, who was in Arizona with his with his kid or his grandkids. So I drove up here at 11:35 at night and got a broom and started pushing water out of this building. Got the water turned off. Was pushing water out of here uh, at two o'clock. I finally got a, a water remediation company to come out and soak it all up and get fans all out here and everything. And I remember thinking to myself, "Well, this is a great way to start this year. Uh, well, I, I, I'm sure it's, it's everything will be fine. This is not a weird omen or anything." In ge- yeah, downhill from there. In January, in January, somebody got up on stage with Marty in the middle of the church, so that was fun. Uh, so it's been it's just been a crazy year. But look, uh, there's a lot to be thankful for, a lot to look back on with fond memories as well. I think God's going to do a lot with this time, and uh, we'll we'll see kind of how everything goes as we get through this Christmas and a very very fascinating twenty twenty. We're going we're gonna to close with, uh, with working through John chapter 17, and we're going to do the entire chapter today, so I'm going to read fairly quickly and just hit some points as we go, uh, but I was just doing, you know, as I was reading in my daily Bible reading, I came across John 17, and it was a very comforting chapter for me to read in the midst of a crazy year, and, and I thought it might just be a, a proper thing for us to end on today, uh, as we go, and then next year we'll kick off with the Sermon on the Mount. But it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of scripture and a, a very helpful thing for us to understand uh, just how much our God loves us. And so I just hope as you guys kind of go into Christmas and go in to spend time with your families and, and whatever may be upon you in the next few weeks, that you can kind of remember... You can remember this chapter from John. you can remember these words of Christ because it's just a beautiful beautiful uh, lesson for us a beautiful prayer for us to really absorb so the the main theme that I wanted to kind of talk through that hit me as I was going through this this chapter was this concept of the foundation of what we believe matters right it really really matters so wh- what I mean by that is we can we Us and our neighbor can say we believe the same thing, but those beliefs have to be based on something, right? And if that something is different, you know, we can end up in very different directions based on what that foundation of our belief actually is. And I wasn't exactly sure how to how to talk about this, how to illustrate this. But then I was reading my friend's Tyler, who's on with us today. I was reading a a book review he did late last night, and he had a little bitty footnote at the very end of his review that was a perfect way, I thought, to explain this concept. So I'm trying to help us understand that the foundation of what we believe matters. And one thing he pointed out was this. He said, in the Declaration of Independence, if you think about all of our founding fathers here in America, we have this idea, this concept of inalienable rights, right? Uh, Man has certain rights that cannot be revoked. And and in our founding as a country, who is it who is the issuer of those rights? Think think to your American history classes. God, right? Our Creator. You know, we, we make it known in, in our founding that that those rights come from our Creator, right? They do not come from man. They don't come from the government. They come from our Creator. Well, not too long after the American Revolution, the French got the idea that they were going to have the revolution of their own, right? And so we see this this huge competing contrast between you know the philosophy of Rousseau and, and philosophy of Locke in America. But when you look into the French Revolution they had this thing that they developed called the rights of man, right? And had some very similar rights, right? Almost verbatim to the American Revolution, right? But who was it in the French Revolution who was the guarantor of those rights? It was not God, right? Uh, those rights were guaranteed by man themselves. Those rights were guaranteed by a secular government. It, the government was the issuer of those rights. So you have this, this, this concept here where you've got the same rights, But they have a different foundation. They have a very different foundation. The foundation of our American rights is based on our creator. The foundation of the rights of the French was based on the government, right? A secular foundation. Both of those lead us in different directions. It shouldn't shock us that within five years of the rights of man being issued by the French government, that that same government executed tens of thousands of its citizens, right? So it's a very good point. The foundation of what we believe matters. If if the foundation of my belief that I have certain rights is based on a government saying so, then it would be very easy for that very same government to change its concept of what rights I have. We see this play out today in the American Constitution as we kind of reestablish what are rights and what aren't rights, but the American idea of our rights being guaranteed by our creator is a very strong foundation. That creator can't change its mind because God is omnipotent and omniscient, right? That God is unchanging in his nature. So, I think about that a lot because I think we have to understand as Christians that the foundation of our core beliefs is very, very important. As Christians, we hear certain things that we may all think we all agree upon, right? Things like this. Jesus came to forgive our sins, right? That's a, that's a very known belief, right? Jesus came to forgive our sins. Well, what's that based on, right? What's the foundation of that belief, Right. Yeah. So I mean, think about it, but Jesus came to forgive our sins. Okay. Whose sins? Who was it? Everybody's sins. Right. Did he come to forgive everybody's sins? Uh, Well, how did he do that? Right? How, how do we understand that? I mean, if if you get if you were to ask you know any kid over in first grade who's come through the Crossings Kids Education Program, you know, did Jesus forgive our sins? Yes, right. Then ask them to dig down deep into the foundation of the beliefs, and it's going to get really thin really quick, right? I mean, unless you ask my nine year old son, who somehow has figured all this out, but but um, but you know, you have to have that understanding of the foundation. We we talk about things of like this. We'll say, hey, the body of Christ, the church, needs to be unified. Well, that sounds really good, right? And it's true. It's a belief that we hold. Why? Why does the church need to be unified? Why is it important that our brothers and sisters in Christ are unified in Christ? Why does that matter, right? do, Do we want to think about this? A church could have a strategy to get a lot of people into Sunday school, right? How do we get people into Sunday school? And we can talk, and, and, and I'm not saying we do this in our leadership team at church, but anyone who's heard in ministry, we have all these strategies of getting people in Sunday school, getting people into Bible studies, getting people into community groups. Why? Why do we do these things? Right? There's a foundation of a belief that exists beyond or below the strategy of getting you guys in Bible studies. There's a reason we do this. Why is it? Right? If, if I was trying to make money off you guys which that's not my goal but if i'm trying to make money off you guys i'm trying to get a following get a following get people together so that i can get critical mass so i can increase the amount of people who could potentially give me money right well one of my strategies could be getting you guys into groups like this right the foundation of what we're doing here is very different than that though we're getting you guys into a group to study the word of god for a reason that is different than what a for-profit company would do we have different ideas God will protect me. That's another belief that is very, very central to what we understand. From what? For what reason? To what extent? Right? So what I wanted to do is, the reason I'm saying all this is, it matters why we believe certain things. It matters these core ideas of Christianity. It matters the foundation of why we believe those things really, really are critical. Because if we don't have that foundation right, We're going to build these beliefs on sand and they're going to topple, right? They're going to topple. And so for me, as I was going through John chapter 17, I... You, you hear Jesus so beautifully articulate so many core foundational ideas of our religion, of our relationship with Christ, of our reconciliation with God, of, of what he is doing in our lives now, of what he will do. Like, there are so many of these core foundational ideas, but he also, like, he also explains the why. Right? He gives us so much of the why, why it, it, to help us understand why these things really matter. I feel like you could, you could read John chapter 17 over and over and over again, in particular as a new Christian, and have a very good understanding of our faith. Right? And, and so I would just encourage you guys that you know, we'll go through this today, but just know that what Jesus is saying here in this prayer is foundational. To what we believe, right? And it matters that we understand this foundation. All right, that may have made absolutely no sense to anyone, but uh, we'll get into John chapter 17 here. So John chapter 17, a little bit of context before we get into this. This is occurring right before Jesus is betrayed and crucified. Right, so I mean, he—I mean, if you go into John chapter eighteen, you're going to get into the whole scene where he is—he is captured and goes through the whole, whole ordeal of the crucifixion. So this is happening right before that moment, and this is a prayer between Jesus and God the Father. That that Jesus is openly having for the benefit of the disciples who are right there next to him, the 11 that are with him, to hear that prayer. He wants them to hear him communicating this to the Father. He he wants to make sure it's heard, it's written, that we're, we're discussing this here today. He's being very purposeful about that. So that's the context of what's coming uh, through here. But we need to understand, we need to kind of back this way, way up to, to get the very beginning um, foundational understanding from this prayer. And you'll see in a lot of your Bibles, you'll see a heading uh, next to this prayer that says the high priestly prayer. Does anyone have a Bible that, that says that as a heading, high priestly prayer? Uh, this is known uh, to a lot of people as the high priestly prayer. And this gets back to this idea that Jesus came as priest, king, and prophet and from the order of of Melchizedek. And we're we're not going to get into Melchizedek because that's about three lessons in itself. But uh, one of the roles Jesus came in was in the order of the high priest. And so if you go back to your Old Testament understanding of what the role of the high priest was within the Jewish people, within the Israelites— the high priest was really set aside as a religious leader of the people, uh, but the high priest had one very, very important role that only the high priest was allowed to do. And so I want you to imagine in your heads the temple, the temple that was constructed under Solomon for a moment, uh, this beautiful, beautiful temple, and you entered into the, the temple courts and you had a couple of rooms that you would eventually get to as you went from east to west into the temple. And you would get into the, the the holy places in the temple. And behind the curtain, there was a room called the Holy of Holies, right? It was the most holy place. And within that Holy of the Holies, do you know what we would keep in the Holy of Holies? Does anyone know? The Ark of the Covenant. You'd have the cherubim. You'd, you'd have, you know, it was, it was the Word of God was kept. I mean, that original law within the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies. And so... Um, God gave this rule, though, this law, that on one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, or in Jewish, in Yom Kippur, right, one day of year, the high priest was allowed to go through the curtains and go into the Holy of Holies. But only the high priest was allowed to go into that room. I mean, the, people would have thought about it going, Think about like going into the presence of God, almost. And the only reason the high priest went into that room on the, on the Day of Atonement was to make a sacrifice. And he was making a sacrifice to atone for the sins of himself and all the people. And this was kind of God's way of continuing to push off the judgment of our sins, right? Once a year, uh, there was this blanket atonement given for all the people. And, and you did not enter into the Holy of Holies at any point of, point of time other than that one day. And the only person who could do it was the high priest. But it was kind of God's way prior to Christ's coming of reconciling his people to him, of of pushing off the judgment, of paying the price for the sins of the people for that year was that perfect sacrifice that was made within the Holy of Holies, blood sprinkled in the Holy of Holies at that point in time. So just to put this into some modern context for just a moment, uh, if anyone's been to Israel, you know what I'm talking about, but if you haven't been, you've heard of the Wailing Wall. Right. So the Wailing Wall in Israel is still there today. You know, Jewish people will go up to the wall and will pray and put prayers in that wall. And that wall was kind of the is the last remnant of the old temple. It's kind of right there on the western foundation of the original temple. And the Jewish people will go up to that western wall because for them that is the closest place they can get to that original Holy of Holies. Right? you know, they would. That Holy of Holies was on the far west side of the temple, and so that wall really represented that western back end of where the Holy of Holies would have been. So that's why it's so important to the Jewish people today that they still go to that wall and they pray, even though it's on the back side of where it would have been originally. So this is all real stuff, right? These things really happened, and part of that law was that the high priest would go to atone for the sins, of the people for that year, so I want you to think about that day, what a glorious day it would have been back in the Old Testament, I mean, everyone would have been waiting for this day of atonement. It would have been a festival, it would have been a big ordeal and Before the high priest would have gone in and done his role to to offer that sacrifice, all he would have issued a prayer, he would have communicated to the people you know he would, have, he would this would have been a public event, and so, as we look at Jesus, think about what he 's getting ready to do right. He is getting ready to go and offer himself as the perfect sacrifice to God in the presence of God, him being God in flesh. He's getting ready to offer the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. right? And, and so we call this the high priestly prayer because it's Jesus addressing his disciples before he goes and in a cosmic sense does what the high priest would have done in the day of atonement. Only this is done at this incredible, incredible level because of who it is who is being made the sacrifice. Does that make sense? So I want you to think about this. This is one of the really cool things is if you only read the New Testament, you'll get a flavor of things but you won't, without the Old Testament context, you won't understand that this God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament is exactly consistent. You know, what we were doing in the Old Testament so often is just this small foreshadowing of what Jesus will do at a much more incredible level. But we see a complete consistency from the law of the Old Testament into the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. And this is a great way where we see Jesus fulfilling the role of the high priest. So just one of these foundational ideas, Jesus came to forgive us for our sins right how right well just like the priest blood was was required as a sacrifice back in the old testament to pay for the price to atone for the sins of the people blood is required to re, to pay the price for our sins jesus is saying as a priest i am offering myself as that sacrifice to atone for your sins right we have to understand that that understand that that foundational knowledge of how our sins are forgiven so that's the context of what's happening here as he's about to address his people. And we're going to read this prayer, and there's four major things I want to really point out in this prayer. Uh, first thing is, within our relation of Christ, this foundational idea is how, how Jesus talks about us, uh, about preserving and protecting us. I want to talk about, so preserving and protecting will be one the other one is how he talks about sanctifying us for a purpose, how he talks about unifying us for a purpose, and how he talks about us obtaining glory with him. Right, so protection and perseverance, sanctification, unification, and glory. And just keep these in mind as we'll go through, and I'll kind of stop at each one as we get into this prayer. So verse 17 Remember, Jesus is speaking to God the Father, and he, he wants to do it in the ears of all his disciples. And I'm just going to read this quickly. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Right? So how often in Jesus' ministry does he say, the hour is not yet near? Right? He's saying now, the hour has come. What I have come here to fulfill, the, what I have come to do, that time has come. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Just to stop there for just a second, I love that, before the world existed. Just another reminder that Christ himself made known the claims of who he is, right? If you ever have anyone says, Jesus Christ never says that he is God... He says, I am with God before the world existed. You, know, you go back to John 1, you know, uh, and the word became flesh, the word was God. You, know, God, you, know, you, you go through that. He, he is making it very clear who he is. Verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. Verse 9, Jesus is going to talk here about who it is that he's praying for. I want you to pay attention to this for just a moment. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So step back for that for just a moment. The high priest of Israel, back in the Old Testament, whenever he's offering sacrifices for the sins of his people, is he offering sacrifices for the sins of the entire world? Absolutely not. He's offering sacrifices for the sin of his people. This is a foundational argument, or foundational understanding that we need to have. A lot of people will say, God has come into this world to forgive the, the, the entire world of their sins. Well, if that is what you believe you're going to end up in a very different place than someone who believes that God has come into this world to forgive the sins of his children, right? to forgive the sins of his people. right? If, if everyone's sins are forgiven, what difference does it make if we have faith and follow Christ whatsoever? Right? If everyone's sins are forgiven, if, if, if we go down a universalist theology here, where everybody ends up with God, you know, in glorious harmony with God, what does it matter that we exercise our faith? What does it matter that we actually believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? What does it matter that we follow him? Right? I want you to look right here. He goes, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you've given me. Right? And we interpret that as those who have put their faith in Christ, right? who have been given to Christ. Right? Those are the people that he is uttering this prayer for. The high priest wasn't praying for the people in Moab. Right? He was pe- praying for the people that God had given them. So, keep going here. Verse 10, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And we're going to see the protection and preservation here. I want you to listen to these words. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. This idea that was comforting to me as I'm reading this is that, Christ cares about preserving and protecting me, right? He says, he's going to go on here in a minute, we'll read, to say that, that while I'm in the world, I've been able to protect them. I've been able to guard them. I've, I've been there. Jesus talks uh, throughout throughout the Gospels. We'll see Jesus referred to as, I am the gate, right? I am the gate. You know, he, it's this image of a shepherd who would who would take his sheep up into the mountain, and he would find this cave in the mountain, you know, to put his sheep in at night. And the sheep would go back safely in the cave, and the shepherd would lie across the gate, right? Would lie there between the sheep and the outside worlds, to where if wolves or anything else were to come and attack, they had to get through the shepherd, right? He goes, he goes I have protected my flock while I'm here. Keep them, protect them, keep them in your word. There's this prayer that he cares about protecting his children, and he wants it known that he cares. If you keep going there, he says, uh, continuing in verse 11, he goes, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas there. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." So we get this foundational understanding that God wants to protect us and to preserve us. But we have to understand right here from this, this context that Jesus himself tells us what? The world's not going to like you, right? The world's not going to like you because you are following my word, right? And, and I don't, I'm not asking you to be taken out of the world. He's going to get here in a minute to, to confirm what our mission is in many ways. But he goes, you're not going to be taken out of the world, Protect them while they are in this world because they are following me. They are staying true to your word. We have to understand right up front in this that there will be trials and tribulations of many kinds. And we've talked about that in here a number of times. But think about, again, the two different ways of thinking. Someone who says, Jesus loves me, Jesus protects me. And then when something horrible goes wrong in their life, they are rocked because their foundation is based on an understanding that Jesus loves me, which means everything should go okay. And if something doesn't go okay, it means I must have done something wrong, right? How quickly, how, and, and how many people, you, you know people like this, right? God must be mad at me. God must not love me. There must be something I'm doing. I must have done something to anger the gods, right? That, that bad foundation creeps into our theology very, very easily. Right? We have to have a foundation that understands exactly what Jesus just said here. "You are in this world, but you are not of this world, and there will be trials and pain and suffering, but I will protect you. Right? I will honor you, right? Like the, the, he is with us and no matter what we are facing. So you're going to keep going on. That was the protection and perseverance. Verse 17, we're going to see this idea, of sanctification. So sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, sanctify I want you to think about sanctify as to make holy to, to set apart this process of setting people apart, right so sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth there 's a foundational understanding here in this in these verses. And we need to pay attention there in verse 19 where it says, and for their sake, for their sake, right? Jesus is saying, for the sake of my children, I have set myself apart. I have come down for the sake of my children. I am the sacrifice for the sake of them, right? Go back to this idea of hesed, right? This this one-way love, right? Where it's a self-sacrificial love. For their sake, I have done these things for their sake I have atoned for their sins. But he's telling them to sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy, make them holy into this world. Because there is a purpose, there's a mission that we have. And we're going to keep reading as we go through there. Verse 20 goes like this, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who would believe in me through their word. So Imagine this for just a minute. Imagine that you're a disciple sitting there listening to this prayer and you hear these words. Jesus is praying to God and it's very clear. He's talking about the 11 who have followed him faithfully, who are sitting there next to him. And he's he's, he's asking God to protect them, to preserve them, to sanctify them. But then he makes it known to them. He goes, by the way, I'm not asking only for these 11 people. This prayer is not just for the 11. This prayer is for who? Everyone who believes, right this prayer, he might as well, Jesus might as well when it comes to your relationship with Christ. He might as well have said, "This is not just for them, but it's also for Charles." right It's also for Lee. It's also for Jean, right? It is, for, it is for Blake, like it is for Easton and Samantha, it's for Rick, right? Like This prayer that I am praying on your all's behalf, it's not just for these guys here today, but these guys are going to go out into this world that I'm commanding them to do, and they're going to tell people about your word, they're going to tell people about truth, and I'm praying this prayer for all the people you are going to give me who believe all throughout the history of man, right? What a beautiful comfort that is to know that in that moment, right before Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice, he is thinking about you. He is thinking about you. Very comforting for me. He says, so I don't ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. And verse 21 says this. Verse 21 starts talking about unification. He says, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So I want to stop here on this one for a minute. So Jesus is praying for unity of believers, right? And whenever you guys think about unity, what do you normally think about? What's this? You know, Whenever you think about unity, what's the first thing that kind of comes to your mind? You don't think about politics. Yeah, there you go. It's the exact opposite of politics. There you go. Yeah. Yep. Having the same same thought, right? And that's a great way of thinking about it, having the same thought. For some reason for me, whenever I, I, I think of unity, I normally just think about everybody getting along. You know, just this idea of just... Can we just be civil uh, with each other? I mean, that that's, that tends to be how we, we we describe unity a whole lot. I think I think a lot of churches, for better or worse, they and for anyone who's been a pastor in here, you know, we'll preach on unity whenever we know there's a faction in the church, right? You know, so it's it's uh, these guys. Here, here's a great idea great way this has happened before we want to be unified there's a group over here that thinks that if you don't only sing hymns you might as well go to hell right and this group over here says if you don't start singing contemporary songs no one's going to come to your church and there's a faction and people get political in the church and like every good old baptist church has been through this at some point in time right so so you know we'll preach on unity it's like hey guys let's get along you know we're all here we're all one in christ all that good stuff let's be unified uh, we don't have those issues very much in crossings, which is really good. Uh, we just give you guys like 12,000 different worship services to choose from. So, yeah, Gene. Yeah, they all. Yeah, yeah thank you, Major Duck said. Uh, proves that there are there are cars in the Bible because they were all in one accord. Uh, so, thank you. I'll remember that one for a sermon one day. Um, but this idea of unity, we, we tend to explain it in church as, hey, let's make sure the church is getting along, right? Let's make sure it's getting along. And that is not at all what Jesus is talking about here uh, in any way. All right, so let's read this again and dwell on this a little bit. He says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I, you, that they also may be in us, so that, right, so I want, so that. Anytime you see, you read in the Bible, you need to look for what's the reason he's saying something. So that, like, let's, let's see what comes after the so that. We're going to be unified. He's praying for unity for a reason, What's after the so that? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. We call, we call Bible study in many churches, we call it fellowship, right? And you probably heard the word fellowship so often that you think fellowship is hanging out and chatting and having coffee, Right? I mean, we had a fellowship hall in the little, little church I grew up in in Kentucky. And fellowship hall was for hanging out, eating dinners, and having coffee, right? I mean, that's what you did in fellowship hall. What's the word fellowship mean? For any Lord of the Rings fans, what's the word fellowship mean? The fellowship of the ring. What does it mean in that context? The fellowship of the ring had a meaning, right? They had a purpose. The fellowship of the ring was to to get this group together to go do something, right? They they were going to destroy the ring. And if you haven't seen the Lord of the Rings, I'm not going to spoil it for you. But the fellowship was this group that banded together to go do something. Jesus is saying, I want you to be unified, not so everybody just gets along, but so that... The world may believe that God the Father sent Christ to forgive the sins of the people, and people will be glorified as they are in the Son, just like the disciples are there with Christ. Right? It is so that people may believe. We need to be of one mind, of one spirit, in Christ so that God will work through this us so that others may believe. He just got done praying for all those who will believe, and unification of the church of the body is the mechanism that we have to have so that we go fulfill our purpose, right? So he's praying for unity for a reason. Verse 22 says, "...the glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one." Human history has shown us over and over again that man is incapable of putting aside our differences and working together on anything, right? I mean, just, like, just go, go study any civilization, and we're going to prove that we are horrible at this. I mean, we are absolutely horrible at this. And, and so the idea that a group of people who are radically different can come together and a, for a common purpose is an outrageous idea. When, when you look at it in the context of all of human history. The fact that black and white, slave and free, Greek, Jew and Gentile, you know, Greek and, you know the, the, the idea that all these disparate people can come together under one movement, under large geographic areas and, and everything, that makes no sense. It can only happen because we are in one mind through the Holy Spirit in Christ. Keep going here to the last thing because Jesus is going to talk here about us obtaining glory. Another foundational idea. Verse 23 says, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Just dwell on that for a moment. Jesus Christ is telling us right in that moment that right before he goes to the cross to die an excruciating death, right? he is thinking about the day that you will be next to his side in glory in heaven. right? And just how comforting is that to know that he desires that we get to experience that glory. right? He desires that on your behalf that you get to experience that glory one day with him in heaven in a perfect, perfect way, right? That is what is on his mind. That is the last thought before he goes to be betrayed, right? And for me, as I, as I think about this Christmas season, I think about this concept that love itself came down from heaven. Love that was manifest before the creation of the world, love that was there in all creation, love that was there, that all things were created through, that nothing was, was created, that was not created through Christ, right? That love itself came down and is there mediating on our behalf and cared enough that in those moments, he said, remember the high priest who would atone for the sins of his people? I am the great high priest. Those are my people and I care. I care that they're protected I care that they're going to be able to be preserved in this world that is not of me, this world that is corrupted. I care that they'll be preserved, but I also care that they're going to be made holy. They're going to be set apart from all people. And through that, because they're set apart, because they're of one mind, they're going to be unified, and they're going to go and show other people who I am and who you have sent, and they're going to love me, and I will love them. And one day, all those people, through all of this, who have put their faith in me will be there with us in glory. Just like I was there before the creation of the world, right? what a comforting what, a, what, what comforting knowledge that is, and it 's built on a foundation that is strong, right and that foundation's not going to crumble. everything is consistent all through the Bible on that foundation. This is not man making up an idea, this is a belief that is built on an incorruptible object right so let me finish out the text, and I just want you to just kind of. Let the text, let the word of God just really sink in as we finish this out. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these, these people know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Love came down in that Christmas morning, right, and has given us these promises, right? This is what we build our faith on. This is what we build all of our ideas of our our Christianity on. If you are ever doubting that Christ loves you, right, if you are ever doubting that Christ loves you, I hope you pull out John 17, Because this is proof that he cares about the trials you're going through. He cares about the pain. He cares about the church you go to. He cares about what you learn. He cares about what truth is absorbed. He cares, right? And he wants you to be there in your full glory next to him one day in perfect, perfect sanctification. Make sense? All right. Merry Christmas, everybody. Let me pray real fast and we will get out of here. Father, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you that we are loved when we don't deserve it. Thank you that you are there for the trials, that you are there in these great times. Thank you for giving us this amazing thing called the church, which makes no sense to man. Thank you for it. What a beautiful gift this is. Thank you for each man in here, and thank you for the spirit that dwells within them. May you be with them this Christmas season. May they experience your love in an incredible way. May we be grateful for you. May you do amazing things through our church because we have one mind. Not because of our resources, not because of who we are, not because of where we came from, but because we have one mind in you and we have put our trust in you. May you do incredible things. May people know you. May they love you. May they be glorified in you. Because this group of men right here loves you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Thank all you guys on Zoom. Appreciate you guys. You guys have a Merry Christmas.